Well, that's got to get you all excited for the fall season, yes? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm really keyed up about the fall always when it's the start of the ministry year and it's so exciting. I had trouble sleeping last night. I think it didn't help that I was worshiping to Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir till about midnight and then tried to lay down and go to sleep. It's just not possible. So, but anyway, I'm, I'm uh, excited about the fall season. We've had our playtime through the summer. Now it's game on, right? Yes? Come on, it's game on. We got some stuff to do this year. I think God has, has got some great things in store for us. He's going to move us along. He's changing us. He's making a difference in our lives. Most of you probably remember where you were 17 years ago this coming Tuesday. I was actually brand new here at the church, and Pastor Wally was giving me an orientation of the hospital here in Oshawa, and we were in the emergency room about 9 o'clock, and I was watching with stunned amazement and distress as a plane flew into a building. So if you're over 25, you remember pretty much what you were doing that day, yes? And then I remember about a year later going to New York City with Lynn and just seeing the, the carnage, the, the, the sheer magnitude of, of what happened. And then to think about the thousands of lives that were, that were changed forever lost lives, and then all of the, 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 um, the families that were, that were um, connected to all of that, and all of that happened. I was thinking about the, um, that whole event and the fact that, that America got blindsided, but really shouldn't have. I, I was watching a, a dramatic presentation not too long ago, and they were demonstrating or showing why the United States should not have been caught so off guard by that particular attack. You see, it was just, just before 9-11 that there was a lot of terrorism chatter, so much so that the CIA had warned the then Bush government that they better do something dramatic because something was about to happen, something very, very significant. Also, it was re revealed that three of the five terrorists who boarded the plane that flew into the Pentagon had warnings by the then fairly lax security, but there was security, in pre-boarding um, uh, screening that on the boarding passes of three of the five terrorists, they were flagged. And very little was done. In fact, one of them was carrying a box cutter in their back pocket. But I think what was the sheer wake-up call for America was this. The reason that attack went forward was because America didn't believe that they could be attacked from within. And so they really didn't prepare. I was thinking about that in light of sort of launching our fall season here and what we as a people need to think about. And I would say to you that as we look at the landscape of evangelicalism, and I'm, I'm not talking about those who are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ or even church movements that are far, far from the truth. But I'm talking about the the big tent called evangelical Christianity, of which we are a part. 
there is a lot of chatter that should warn us that things are not right among us. But more importantly, we need to realize and not be caught off guard the way America was and realize that within our own large evangelical tent, there are increasing problems with respect to our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and our testimony of the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of God that we represent. So today I want to um, remind us of our core values. This is not new to you, but I want to frame it under the idea of five disturbing trends that are currently on the landscape of evangelicalism that our core values, we call them our five essentials, address. And why we at this moment, 2018, need to pay more careful attention to our essentials than ever, particularly as the warnings messages are out there and the very fact that internally we have some challenges. So having said that, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord to direct our our morning together. Father, we just thank you that we've had an opportunity to lift up our voices and our hearts and to praise you, to remind you how much we love you, O God, to thank you for what you've done for us, to uh, sing the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, to recommit ourselves to our loyalty to you, O God, in worship. And now as we pause to look into your word, I pray, O God, that, that as we take a look at the landscape around us, that we might shore up those things that we believe you have caused us to consider as essential. Lord, I pray that we would be... Um, very, very committed to being careful about how we live and what we believe and to whom we listen to and to whom we invite into, uh, to, have, uh, to be able to speak into our lives. So I pray, O oh God, that uh, you will, as you have the f- offered your faithfulness to us for all of these 90 years, we find ourselves, Lord, at a moment, not dissimilar to that time when courageous people stepped forward and and drew a line, a line that uh, divided those who were going to, uh, to commit themselves to the truth of God's word and those who were going to, to waver with the culture. Oh Lord, would we realize that this 90 years has not been without cost. That our forefathers and our foremothers who were faithful and committed to your word, to the truth of the gospel, to the gospel as presented in the scriptures, not another gospel, to the Lord Jesus Christ as only Lord and Savior, to the sufficiency of scriptures, uh, to the, the primacy of prayer, to the greatness of God, and to the right kind of worship. I pray, O oh God, that we would not abandon that, but, but pay ever more careful attention to it. In these days, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be all over the scriptures this morning, so maybe you'll catch up with me, maybe you won't. 
But I just want to tell you for, at, at the outset of what I'm about to share with you this morning, what I'm about to tell you is researched and true. And so I'm going to tell you the truth. I always tell you the truth. I'm going to be honest with you. <clears throat> but I'm going, to, I'm going to allow the perpetrators of these problems to remain anonymous on purpose. I don't want this to turn into a gossip and gasp session about what's going on around us and who actually is perpetrating these things. I want us to just grab hold of our Bibles and hold on for dear life. Because God has taken us on the ride of our lives, but, but we need to know that it is incumbent upon us to, to concern ourselves with the truth and what God's Word has to say and, and not uh, be caught up in necessarily naming names and naming places. So I'm not shy about telling you where I found stuff and what it's about personally if you need to know because it's, it's best for you, but I'm, I'm just not making it about that today. So I hope that's okay with you. So I just want to talk about five disturbing trends that are true, they're out there, and uh, how our essentials address those trends. And the first is this. There's an eroding confidence in God's Word as sufficient and relevant. This is not a new thing to you, but, but in these two words, sufficient and relevant, I'll, I'll reframe them as there's an eroding confidence in God's Word so much to the point that people are adding to God's Word and some people are taking away from God's Word. Sufficient because they do not see the Word of God as sufficient. They're adding to God's Word because they do not see God's Word as relevant. They're taking away from God's Word. Relevant to the culture, to the days we live in. God is old-fashioned. He's lost touch. He's out of touch. He couldn't possibly have known how he should frame his Word in light of the days we live in. These are the kinds of things I'm talking about. There's an eroding confidence. I've been fascinated, and maybe some of you have been, by the confirmation hearings of the... uh, the Supreme Court Justice for the United States uh, Supreme Court. So I've been watching a little bit of that stuff. And, and uh, one thing that leapt out at me that I thought was really germane and really relevant to our whole milieu here is a kingdom of Christ. Keep in mind, we are a country. We are a nation. Do you understand this? We are a nation within nations. We, we are a country that spans the globe. Our king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, the... The nature of good government and, and, and good realities within governments fits into the kingdom ideal that we have as kingdom citizens of Christ and his kingdom. But, but I picked up this and they were saying in the confirmation hearings that there is one thing that keeps a country from collapsing into anarchy. And that is this. When that country is a country of laws and not a country of individual men's or women's opinions. That's just common sense, but it's, it's how the, the, the civilized and ordered world works. When there is anarchy and crisis in the world or around the globe, it's usually because people, the, the, the reality of laws have come unglued, and, and everybody's doing what they think is right. We are living in a moment in evangelicalism whereby we are, we are quickly deciding not to heed that intelligent reality. We are, a citizen, we are citizens of a kingdom of laws given to us by God. And the order with which things remain 
uh, versus chaos has everything to do with our commitment to God's word versus the opinions of others. The protection from tyranny for us in the kingdom of God, the tyranny of individuals, the tyranny of opinions, the tyranny of men and women who speak or write books, has everything to do with the fact that we are a kingdom of laws, commands given to us by God. And it is critical for us to recognize that within the kingdom of God, we have received a sufficient presentation of God's commands and laws for us. It shouldn't surprise us, but maybe we're unaware of this, that in every genre of Scripture, God has urged His people to know this. Do not add to my word. Do not take away from my word. It's not just found in one place. It's found, as I said, in every literary expression of the word of God. It's found in the writings of Moses, It's found in the wisdom writings, it's found in the prophetic writings, and it's found in the New Testament. And I think God is saying to us, how many more times would you like me to tell you this before you actually believe it? That adding to my word is unacceptable, taking away from my word is unacceptable. I don't want you to take my word for it. I'm going to take you on a little quick journey here so you can see it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. This is the writings of Moses. Pentateuch, as we call it. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it. Deuteronomy 4 2. But keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Now let's go from the Mosaic writings to the wisdom writings. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6. Proverbs 30, verse 6. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. You want to quickly write a book that God will declare lies? Write a book that says you are writing revelation from God, and he will prove you a liar. Go to the prophetic. Prophetic. Ezekiel 22. God is declaring through the prophet Ezekiel his frustrations and, and uh, um, ex- um, exceptions to what is happening around. And he deals in particular with the prophets. And in uh, verse 28 he says there, Her prophets, meaning Israel, whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. They say... This is what the Sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. And then right at the very end of the New Testament, 90 A.D., John's revelation of Jesus Christ, the wind-up of the presentation of Scriptures, there it's written in Revelation 21, 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. This is serious business. The matter of handling the word of God in such a cavalier fashion as to take away from it or add to it. And it's happening all around us. 
The fastest way to create chaos within the kingdom of God is to start adding to the word of God or taking away from the word of God. We are a kingdom of laws, commands that have been handed to, down to us by the word of God. Let's understand one thing and make it abundantly clear. We learned this in our study in the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, which are these days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. You want to talk about God speak, Jesus speak? The word of God has declared that scripture is God speak. How does God communicate to us? Through Jesus Christ. Through the presentation that's been given to us in the scriptures. As Jude writes, once for all. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints and sufficient. Anything that we allow to come into our lives that is claimed to be revelation, new revelation from God, is subjective opinions of man or women. And I'm now telling you that the scriptures are, are God speak. The scriptures is Jesus speaking, not other statements made that God has not said. We are embracing Mormonism by inviting other revelation than the revelation of Jesus Christ presented to us in the sufficiency of the scriptures. They have another testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are increasingly stocking our shelves with things that don't call themselves another testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, but are pretending to be that. That's why we take God's word seriously because we take God seriously. We don't try to change him or who he is. He is changing us, as we just sang just before we started talk, through the agency of his word and spirit. Scripture is the test standard of the Christian faith. All that is said and done, we are protected from human tyranny by referring to the scriptures. In the, uh, a statement written, recently written concerning social justice, a group of individuals got together and made, I think, a very, very valid statement, a, a, a good affirmation statement for the church, and it goes this way. All truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by God's final word, which is Scripture alone. And I'm going to carry on into the next section by saying that there are those who are who are questioning the relevancy of Scripture, and we'll get into their next section as a hinge by, by me saying this, that there are those who are formally friends of evangelicalism, or friends of our ministry. I'm not talking about people in our own church. And I'm, I'm talking about people within the broader tent called conservative evangelicalism who are proclaiming and preaching and writing that we should be unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament, from the wrath of God. 
We should be unhitching ourselves from biblical sexual ethics. We should be unhitching ourselves from creation as proclaimed. We should be unhitching ourselves from the blood sacrifice of Jesus because each of these things get in the way of people coming to salvation. Brothers and sisters, these truths are what bring people to salvation. We can't improve upon the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing not by man's opinions, not by man being concerned about what God has written, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It is critical for us. So we take God's word seriously. No small S scriptures at Calvary. Secondly, a second trend that's concerning me, and I, I'm hinging into that with what I just said. There's an embarrassed disloyalty toward God concerning his recorded antics and actions to justify subjective obedience. Do you realize that friends of evangelicalism are increasingly out there who are embarrassed about the God of the Old Testament? So much so in this whole pol new political correct evangelical world, world, world that we're living in that they are leading us to worship a very different God than the God of the Bible. And a very different Jesus is being presented than the Jesus of the gospel. And by the way, this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said the sign of the end of the day, of, of the end of history, would be many false prophets, many false Christs, many who would deny the faith. There would be an increase in demonic activity and even there would be a sliding away, if possible, of the very elect. Those in this room called by the living Christ into a relationship with him who are being scammed by slick-sounding words and wording that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is this increasing movement of embarrassment towards the Lord. They're blatantly breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before thee. You shall not make gods of your own. And these false teachers, false teaching, many false teachers, promoting different God, a different God to worship and have immense followings, I might add, because of their compassion and engaging theological generosity. And that is code for we're a little bit embarrassed about how the God of the Old Testament treated sin. And so we're going to present a more generous gospel, a more gracious Jesus, and kinder children of the Heavenly Father. Because we're embarrassed. We're embarrassed about our father. Like, you know, some of us grew up, I didn't, but some of us grew up with a father who embarrassed us. And we vowed to be better children. We vowed to be nicer people. And there's this whole movement out there of preachers and church leaders and book writers who are proclaiming that they are, they're not, they're not saying this. They're not saying this directly as I'm saying it to you. But by their writings, by their attitudes, they're saying we need to leave behind the God who's wrathful against sin. We need to leave behind the idea that the blood of Jesus was necessary to be shed on a cross that we could have salvation. We need to leave behind 
the, the fact that creation is proclaimed by a God who said, uh, who spoke the universe into existence because that embarrasses the scientific mind and that will keep scientists uh, from coming to the kingdom of Christ. Increasingly around us, people are embarrassed of God, the very people who he has called into his kingdom. And so I, 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 I want to say to you this morning, it is very, very critical that we understand that the subjective Jesus that is being uh, uh, foisted on us uh, by these who are, who are seeking to soften the, the, the truths that come out of Scripture are leading us to worship a different God. And we will continue at Calvary Baptist Church to regard worshiping the true God essential. Let me just point out to you that, that when we think about the whole concept of worship, it is critical for us to do every season at the start of our ministry life together and, and individually to look in the mirror and say, who am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? Am I worshiping the living God? Or am I worshiping my possessions? Or am I worshiping my practices? Or am I, wor- or am I worshiping my preferences? Am I worshiping my, my, my possessions? Am I worshiping my profession? Am I worshiping people? Am I worshiping my pastimes? And the only way we can really answer that question is to say, what do I love most? Who do I love most? Who would be the last that I would give up? Where do I invest most of my energy, my investment of time, my treasures? That's why Jesus looked at Peter just before he was going to ascend into heaven, or days before he was going to ascend, and said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because that's going to make all the difference in the world, because, beloved, who or what we worship is the most critical thing in our lives. Because who or what we worship shapes who we are. It absolutely does. And so we regard worshiping God as essential. Listen to what John in 2 John uh, said in in verses 7 uh, through 11. In this little compact epistle that has a real punch. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. And any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. We can't be friends any longer with people who are proclaiming a different gospel according to God's word. We have to be bold and courageous to stand up. No small G God for Calvary. Only the true and living God. There's a third troubling and distressing trend that is going on around us, and that is trading prayer for politics or other activism or as the medium for creating one's own reality. 
I, I cringe every time. I'm not sure how you're feeling these days, but I cringe every time the media shows an image of evangelical lapdogs crowded around some political leader, gazing at him or her as if they are a messiah. It's almost as if they break out in a song, Hosanna, Prime Minister, save us now. Hosanna, President, save us now. I don't want to be misunderstood, brothers and sisters. Political leadership matters. Good politics matters. We, we thank the Lord for organized serv- servants who will keep us organized and in order. And we'll hold our feet to the fire of the laws of the land. It is our protection. God has given us leadership. But brothers and sisters... I hope in terms of our destiny, in terms of justice, in terms of righteousness, in terms of all the things we need in life, we turn to God, not politicians. It seems to me that there are too many Christian leaders who are increasingly drawn to more political gatherings and petitions to leaders than prayer gatherings and petitioning the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm thankful for Michael Horton, who reminded us in an article that some of you were circulating on Facebook, which is part of my research, Psalm 146. Listen to this, please. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men, who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, where should we look? Where should our eyes gaze for social justice and righteousness and right ways of life and our future and our hope? Shouldn't we be lifting our eyes up? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. There is nothing wrong with our involvement or connections with politics. In fact, I would urge it. The more righteous people we can have as servants of the land, the better. But let's not lose our trust in God alone. The truth of the matter is we can't spend more time in petitions and and political gatherings than we are in prayer. And we must be a church and continue to be a church where prayer is the air we breathe Because as dependent creatures, we must rely on constant contact with the Lord, who is our strength. 
In prayer, we learn how to survive spiritual winters, as one writer wrote. And that is so, so true. Prayer is not how God moves us from human to divine. Prayer is how God grows our independence out of us. And we desperately need to depend on the Lord, who is our strength. So pray always and first, fourth, Disturbing trend is, as Eugene Peterson in his message translates the first verse of Romans 6, 1, this disturbing trend that evidently was the same in Rome as it is right now. Keeping on sinning so God can keep on forgiving. In other words, skipping sanctification through stunted growth and sinful sauciness. I think if I hear one more person call confronting sin judgmentalism, I will pray an imprecatory prayer over them. And if you don't know what an imprecatory prayer is, it's not a good thing. Brothers, sisters, confronting sin is not judgmentalism. And it frustrates my heart to hear the scriptures twisted and how people use things to, to just suggest the idea that Jesus didn't confront sin. One of the pet texts that's used is the adulterous woman who the Pharisees haul in front of Jesus. And you all know the story. They bring her to Jesus. She's been caught in adultery And, of course, the law demands that she would be stoned and killed. And Jesus, of course, utters this immortal words, Let those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. So there it is. Jesus is soft on sin. That's not not what the story is all about at all. Here you have a group of self-righteous, disbelieving individuals hauling a sinner just like them before Jesus, and Jesus is awakening a confrontation in their own lives of their own sin by saying to them, you are sinners yourself. And then what does he say to the woman? Ah, it doesn't matter. Go on sinning. Be a saucy, vulgar sinner. That's That's the representative of the Christian community that I'm looking for. No, he says to her, I didn't come to condemn you. I've come to save you. Now, here's the deal. Go and sin no more. Don't keep on sinning. That's not what Christians do. If you read Romans chapter 6 and 1 throughout, it says we we as God's people don't keep on sinning so that grace may more abound. May it never be. We've been called out of our sin. The greatness of salvation is that Jesus Christ has lifted out us out of our slavery to sin, that we might now be free to be righteous before God. We don't carry around our sin like a badge of honor. We come contrite to the Lord and fall, fall on our face before him and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And thank you, O God, for your mercy that you would liberate me from the clutches of sin that has held me as a slave, that I might not have to sin anymore. Within our very ranks in the issues of sexual ethics, it's as if we're taking the the sharp edges of sin and bubble wrapping it and 
putting it on our back and inviting it to join us on the journey. Hey, look at me. I'm just a vulgar sinner. That's not what Jesus has called us to be. Today in the area of sexual ethics, the whole mess of confused sexual, sexuality, and the whole rejection of God's creative design of two genders, a binary attraction, opposite gender attractiveness, that's how God made things. From within our own ranks, there are those who are appealing to allow same gender attractiveness to be normalized in Christianity. So long as... We don't act on the sin. I got news for you, and you know this in the scriptures. Jesus has already ruled on this. Sin isn't just about the action. He calls the very thought of sin, the very desire to sin, sin. So here we have a whole movement within us that is asking us and saying to us, I want Jesus but I want to continue to have my desires to sin too, but I don't want to, I, I won't, don't worry, I won't carry them forth. Jesus said if a man lusts in his mind or in his heart, he has what? Sinned already. Is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us on the cross of Calvary incapable and not powerful enough to rescue us from our sinful desires anymore? I have to cut this short because we're running out of time. Let me just say to you that there is no place in the Christian community for a generation of vulgar, sinful, proud people who of their unholy lifestyles running around praising the grace of God with their sinful lives, declaring themselves people who are keeping it real. I'll tell you what keeping it real is. It's embracing the liberation from our sin that Jesus Christ has paid with his blood for us to have. That, my brothers and sisters, is keeping it real. So we believe growing Christ followers is a necessity. No skipping from justification to glorification, saying sanctification doesn't matter, holiness doesn't matter. Listen, the writer of Hebrews begs to differ. Without holiness, it is impossible to see God. Hebrews 14, or 12, 14. Because the present reason for our salvation is holy transformation. The power of God's love is changing me. I am not who I was. And I am not yet who I will be. God is making me ready for the kingdom of his glorious presence in heaven. And I want to cooperate fully with what God is doing in my life every day of my life. And therefore, I want to make sure that I'm getting myself into intentional growing situations Placing my life. It is not good enough for you to coast on your Christianity and take the gift that God has given to you and, and turn around and coast your whole life and give back the same gift that he gave to you. He calls that person a lazy, wicked servant. Don't you be burying your stuff saying, I got Jesus, I got justified, and now I'm just waiting for my glorification. He's going to say, get lost, wicked, unfaithful, lazy servant. I didn't give you a gift to coast. 
I gave you a gift to grow. And I'm, I'm calling us as a congregation to get passionate about growing for Jesus Christ. You must not be the same in your heart this year as you are next year. You must continue to move forward by God's grace. And he will give you his grace. Finally, the final disturbing trend is, uh, has to do with the whole matter of evangelism and discipleship and how unbalanced we can become when it comes to passing on our faith. I'm afraid that, that there's a tendency for churches, congregations like ours, to get unbalanced. Um, and so there are many churches that I would say are signing up for the witness protection plan or many Christians or becoming hostile witnesses to the truth. You know what a witness protection plan is? What most of us are in. We go to work and come back and nobody knows we're a Christian. Our neighbors don't know we're a Christian because we're in the witness protection program. We don't want people to know who we are because the expectations might increase. It's frustrating at times when I feel like sometimes people avoid inviting Christian leaders to their parties because they don't want their two worlds to collide. They don't want their friends and the lifestyle they're leading with their friends to collide with their Christian leader friends because their world will collide like matter and antimatter and something horrible will happen when that happens. We should not be hiding who we are. It seems like it's an either or. Some churches are, it's just all about attracting people. We don't care about how people's hearts are. We don't care about how their life goes on. We don't care about how deep they grow in Christ. We just want to get people to our church. We just want to have a big crowd. There's a church in Miami that's running this, a September program called Wrestling. That's the ser- sermon series. And they're bringing in four professional wrestlers um, uh, each Sunday. First of all, they're bringing Ric Flair, the nature boy. Woo! Some of you will get that. And then they're bringing in The the Undertaker, and and they're bringing in Ted DiBiase, the million-dollar man, and they're bringing in Sting. And and, and it's all about attracting people to church so they hear Jesus. But but more and more, it's not lost people coming to these kind of things. It's it's people who are bored of their own churches, and they're bored in evangelical churches, cleaning out little churches. But the bottom line is there's, there's nothing going deep into the heart. It's all about what's the next gimmick, what's the next marketing plan. But then there's the flip side where there's churches that aren't, they aren't reaching out at all. They're not working hard at all at it's all about driving the word of God deep into the hearts of people and strengthening the disciples of people. Listen, beloved, Jesus gave us a balanced commission. Go into all the world. Go seek people who are lost and then teach them to obey whatsoever commands I, I have given to you. So it's discipleship is going and seeking and growing in Christ. It's a balanced program. And I, I'm committed as, as leader here to, to lead us into as much of a balanced program as we can have. Our next big emphasis has got to be on witnessing. I, I've, been doing my, uh, I've been doing my own private time with God in the book of Leviticus, which is uh, the, the month, uh, month of, of August, I was looking at Leviticus, and, and I, want, I found something that is very, very important, and with this, we'll wrap it up. Um, Leviticus chapter 5. Um, how many of you have been doing your devotions in Leviticus? Hey, are you telling the truth? All right. Two of us. That's fantastic. Yeah, I finished two. Okay, here we are at Leviticus. But chapter 5, verse 1, listen to this. If a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. In other words, the the word there is if a person sins because he does not witness. 
it occurred to me, and I haven't done a whole lot of work on this because it's really fresh, but it occurred to me, and it might be true, when Jesus gave his final commission in Acts 1, he said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utmost parts of, wor- of the world. It occurred to me that when he used the word witness, it had a whole different seriousness about it to the audience he was listening to who were an Old Testament community audience. In the Old Testament law, if you knew something to be true and right, and you did not declare it when you were asked to testify, you were held responsible for your silence. And I think when Jesus said to his disciples and to us, you will be my witnesses, he was referring to this text and saying to us that if you know something about the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know something that's true about him in your workplace and in your families and in your neighborhood and you refuse to testify, you will be held responsible. It was classified as sin. Brothers and sisters, our loved ones, our neighbors, the co-workers we love are going to go to hell if they don't come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we can't keep putting our heads in the sand and think it's all going to work out in the end. It's not going to work out in the end. If you've read the end of the book, it's not going to work out well for a lot of people. But there are people that God has in mind to call unto himself. And he continues to use the vehicle of witnesses who tell people the truth. Faith comes by hearing. And how are they going to hear unless they have a preacher? And how will they bump into a preacher unless he or she is sent? And you are the preachers of God's word and God's truth as much as I am. And so we believe showing people Christ is who we are because our lives are about truthfully representing the Lord of salvation as commissioned ambassadors of a completely better existence. So there it is, brothers and sisters, five disturbing trends that, that if we remain passionate, committed to our core values, we can push back and remain faithful to the Lord, our Father and our God. We thank you for your incredible patience with us. And, O oh Lord, I pray that you will help us not only to call the lost, but to call those who are getting lost. So, Father, I pray that you will help us to be a church that continues the passion for the Word of God convinced of its sufficiency and relevancy, worshipers of the living God, prayer warriors, those committed to taking responsibility for growth in their lives, to become complete in Christ, and avid witnessers, um, those who are adamant about testifying 
to what they've seen and what they have heard and what they have experienced, what our hands have handled and our eyes have seen and our ears have heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, when we start out this season of ministry, leaders and as a people, we come before God and we say, oh God, what do you have for us? What, what is your grand vision for us? And I couldn't help but think as, as I was uh, putting this uh, together, I, I couldn't help but think about the picture of, of Jesus when he gathered his disciples on that, that rock um, in the gates of hell, that rock in Caesarea Philippi. And he asked the question of his disciples, because there were a lot of people saying, Christ is this, Christ is that, this is Christ, that's Christ. And he said, but who do you say I am? And I think he's doing the same with us this morning as a church, as we go forward in this next, next 90 years, or however long Christ has for us. And he's asking us the same question, but who do you, all these people are saying stuff, but who do you say I am? And we as God's people say back to him, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And he says back to us, you are right. And upon this rock, uh, upon the, the, the very gates of hell, uh, the, the bald outcropping rock in the center of idolatrous paganism, Jesus said, my grand vision is upon that confession of truth, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I feel like that's the vision that God has given us as we see all the things around us. It is, will there be a people who still say you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the one presented in the holy scriptures and it is upon this confession that Jesus will build his church and move it forward. And I want to be that part of the church. And I trust we as Calvary Baptist Church will reaffirm our commitment to the Jesus of the Bible, to the Heavenly Father of the Bible, to the gospel of the scriptures. For in it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the nations. Our Father and our God, I pray and thank you for your power to save, your power to sanctify or make us holy, and your power to ultimately glorify us, O oh God, getting us ready in the meantime, telling the truth to the people around us for your great name's sake. Amen and amen.